0: I'm Jacob Kinberg, and you are listening to Salty Cinema. Today on the show, I'm talking to Jeff and Michael Zimbalis, the Zimbalis Brothers. They are Emmy and Peabody award-winning producers, writers, and directors. They are known for Favela Rising from 2005. They did... A couple of 30 for 30 docs, The Two Escobars and Youngstown Boys. Um, They did the narrative Pele, Birth of a Legend that came out in 2016. And last year they had three feature documentaries come out. Uh, Momentum Generation uh, for HBO, Nosa Chape for Fox, and Give Us This Day, which came out on... uh, direct tv's audience channel and i was the editor on give us this day Um, i first worked with the zimbalist brothers on pele in 2016 as an assistant editor Uh, so it was great to get to talk to them again and kind of go more in depth on uh, their history and we dig into the past couple years and their work on on these three films my entire 2017 was spent editing give us this day the film is about um, police officers in East St. Louis, Illinois, which per capita has the highest murder rate in the United States. And um, we tracked three police officers and three residents of East St. Louis over the course of a year. Here's the trailer. Sometimes I have this dream when I'm up in the clouds just flying. Above everything, away from it all, safe. But when I wake up, I feel disappointed because I'm back in this
1: world. East St. Louis was like a vineyard that made some of the finest wine. But at one point, those vineyards burned down. You couldn't produce what you used to produce, and the people didn't come like they used to
0: come. That's where we are now. Yeah, this East Louis. St. Louis. I
1: got the new St. Louis, very capital of the world. It's a struggle out here. You can be in a gunfight any day. East hey, St. Louis,
2: it's almost like the town that's been forgotten.
1: It's an environment. We know better than the third world country. Open the door now. You got both the police out here. Give the car. They taking advantage of their power. Don't you move. one, two, three, One, two, three, five. I got shot. I
0: don't fear death no more after that. All I ever hear is the clock tick, tick, tick ticking.
1: When you don't have resources, it's a battle.
0: And I'm running, I'm running, I'm running
1: with it now. We don't know what's gonna happen this year, but we can do our part. We have to be more proactive. Whatever I gotta do to provide, I'm gonna do it. You never know if you're gonna make
0: it home. I'm out here to make people in East St. Louis feel safe.
2: Who's about to happen?
0: I wish I could just shake you and let you see what you're doing to yourself. Why do you want to be a policeman so bad? I want to protect and serve what the police officers did to me.
1: People ask me all the time, aren't you afraid? You better be. I live in East St. Louis.
0: It was a really hard project. Um, it was a tough subject matter, but also just tough putting it together, and really a challenge as an editor. The film premiered in November on the Audience Network, and it seems like not very many people uh, caught it. It kind of got lost in the barrage of other content out there, Um, but I highly recommend it. I think it, it really is a good film, and I hope that you will check it out. So we talk about that we talk about documentary filmmaking in general and I think you'll you'll enjoy the conversation so let's do it couple years you guys were working on three different documentaries all at the same time three different feature documentaries documentaries. and then two doc series and And two doc series and some branded content (laughs) why did you decide to take on so much at one time and and how did that work i don't
1: i i can't i don't think there was a moment when we decided that we were going to do that quantity of things all simultaneously it was more that there was irons in the fire And they all caught flame around the same time. But it was actually kind of like a staggered catching flame. But then once they caught flame, the contractual process and then everything coming together Mm -hmm. was such that by the time they were all in the heart of production and the heart of post-production, they had perfectly aligned with each other (laughs) and be happening at the same time with the same delivery schedules, more or less.
2: Yeah, we approached that period um, with a uh, faith that they would stagger in terms of delivery and finishing also.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it just turned out that, and I don't know what the probability of this is, that they all ended up finishing and delivering at the same time. But as we got the gigs, I think we started to see them stacking and realize that we were taking on more than we ever had before. But we were flattered with each one. And, you know, we felt like we had the team and we felt like we could expand horizontally and capacitate it all. The other thing that I would say is that for some of them, I don't think we quite had the aspirations at the onset that ultimately ended up developing. Like, you know, some of these films we thought were going to be smaller projects, um, like the Nosa Chape film, we initially thought we were only going to be... In Colombia and Brazil for a shorter period of time and then the story developed to such an extent that there was so much promise and so many layers um, that we felt we would have been turning away from something promising if we didn't follow it through so the ambition level on some of them expanded which meant that they kicked them up to sort of a priority project. And next thing we knew we had a slate of priority projects.
0: Do you feel like the individual films or projects suffered because you were doing them all at once? I think our
2: health suffered, but the projects didn't. Okay. Yeah. I mean, personally, I, I and I'd like to hear Mike's thoughts on it, but you know, I, I think that a goal for me and a goal for us as a company is to continue to take on challenges that are bigger and scarier than the ones we've done before because when we get to the other side of them and look back, there's a sense of accomplishment um, and pride in what we've done there that, um, that we wouldn't have if we were staying in our comfort zone. And so um, I, one of the things I'm most proud of from the last few years is that, that we are really confident in, well, I shouldn't say confident, that we feel good about all of the films that we made despite doing them all at once. Um, and the the personal trade-offs was, was really where the, you know, that's where some of the misgivings are and mm-hmm. some of the things I would change for next time.
1: Yeah, I think there was actually some instances where having them all running concurrently might have actually helped them individually, um, where there was certain processes and personnel that were, were able to overlap and Um, kind of trade-off positions from one film to the other, gear, you know, all that kind of stuff where it it ended up maybe even being convenient. Um, You know, same vendors, that kind of thing. Um, And I also, there was a kind of fortunate, even though the delivery schedules ended up all aligning, there was a a fortunate sort of creative stagger that I recall where, you know, it never felt like because, um, you know, one of us, or both of us, or those on our crew, were working exclusively on um, this one thing that they were, it was happening at the expense of another. You, it somehow aligned um, where, you know, the, the creative processes were not ready on one, you know, to dive into the paper edit on this film while we're working on that, in, on this other film. Um, it's a curious. Um, I, you know, There's other, something else that I would mention there, which is in relation to your work, um, what it did was provoke us to also um, empower a lot of people on the different projects mm-hmm. to um, take on more than they had in the past, at least in their working with us. Mm-hmm. So, for example, on Give Us This Day, I remember, you know, when we were working together on figuring out the story. There, there, a lot of that fell on your shoulders. Right. Whereas, had there not been these other films, um, I think, um, you know, Jeff and I probably would have been more granular with it. But at the end of the day, that was a, a super beneficial process for the film because you ended up coming up with some really great stuff. And that was true. Um, you know, I know, like, Louis Dectier on, um, particularly Chape. on Nosa Chape, but also on Momentum Generation was you know, in, in that same capacity. So, and, you know, it was true outside of editing. So I think that was, that was a really encouraging experience.
0: Yeah, that
2: was exciting to watch, to, to to have someone say to us, I've never done this and I don't think I can, I need more help here. Mm -hmm. for us to say back, yes, you can, we believe in you, you will deliver and then have that person actually deliver. That's, that was really fun.
0: Yeah, that, that was big for me. And I, I, definitely learned a ton working on give us this day. Um, let, let's talk about all the films. So Nosa Chape, uh, how did you guys get involved, uh, with that project?
1: So we were, um, already involved in the, the, the Phenoms project with Fox and then Gabe Spitzer at Fox Sports reached out, um, right after the plane crash that happened uh, at the end of 2016, where the Brazilian soccer team Chape Coense was flying to, play uh, Atletico Nacional in Medellin and they're playing crash just outside of Medellin and there was six Fox Sports employees on the plane and so it sort of sent repercussions throughout Fox and they were considering you know how to how to respond in the best way um, and decided that it might be good to do a documentary that was going to track what was going to become of this club after this crash that had effectively killed everybody that was involved in the club At a primary level and on our end you know i i live part-time down in midi in colombia where the crash happened Uh, jeff and i have both lived and worked in in brazil and colombia before so we were following it closely and when uh, gabe reached out with the idea of doing um a dock you know it, it just was something that appealed to us um it was only a few weeks after the crash had happened that um you know our crews were first on the ground down in brazil Talking to the remaining members of the club, uh, introducing who we were and what our interests and intentions were for the project, uh, and then by the time everybody returned to the club at the top of the following year, at the top of 2017, you know the cameras had already um, been authorized and we rolling. And the initial plan was to film for about a month um, up until what was what would have been. Um, the first game for the team if they were to decide to you know reopen the doors and keep keep the team alive which they did and the first game arrived and we filmed it and there were so many open narrative uh, threads that we were following at that point that it really felt like um, this was a bigger story and that we wanted to keep filming it and um, fortunately Fox Sports was was down to support that and increase the scope of the project and the the team the community were um, also on board so that allowed us to film for the better part of uh of 2017 and that's the expansion of the project that jeff was referring to earlier so was that the first of the three to get going no i think it was the last
2: yeah momentum probably was in progress the longest of the projects that we were on but that's not including like early development on like our Netflix series which took many years and you know but I think Nose Chapo was the quickest to get off the ground because there was this event and we had to respond to it and then it also was probably the shortest window to realizing there was something bigger there as Mike pointed out because it didn't take that long for us to start to see um, the different factions in in the community, and how they were responding differently to grief, right mm-hmm. to to mourning, the loss of uh, their loved ones. and in there was a more universal theme. And, and I think that's what we attached to and said, okay, we've got the we've got the bigger theme. We can reach a wider audience, people that maybe don't care about football or South America or sport at all, um, but can relate to the question of how best to, to mourn, how best
0: to grieve. So since you guys were working on so many things at once, I know <clears throat> you had to work with multiple crews in terms of who was shooting what and where. How did it work exactly with Nosa Chape?
2: That project, Nosa Chape, was interesting in that we are following so many protagonists that whose lives were in different places often at different times that it was a multi-crew effort. So we worked with teams down there as well as flying people down um, and often would have a crew, you know, traveling with the team, the new team, with the new players after the crash. um, And then someone else filming back home in in Chapecoense with uh, the families um, or or the the administration. Um, Sometimes we had a crew, you know, in, in Europe and in Colombia and in Brazil. So it was it was an effort. To be available when real, authentic moments of emotion occurred, rose to the surface, um, sort of like in in Give Us This Day, like we were doing with any St. Louis on the project you worked on. Um, you know, making sure that we put as much of the budget into being available and having crews. Um, in close proximity so that we could capture those intimate moments as they occurred naturally rather than trying to force them or missing key moments or key turning points in a character's life, which is that's the challenge of Cinema Verite.
0: So what what was the response like to Nos Chape uh, when it was released?
1: Well, I think it was a very positive response. We uh, opened the film at the South by Southwest Festival uh, in 2018, um, followed by other festivals, and then Fox um, did a, a theatrical run with the film in 22 different markets in, in the U.S., which was really um, a great vote of confidence for the film, given that it's uh, you know, almost entirely in Portuguese, and the rest of that is in, in Spanish. Um, and, uh, and, then, uh, and then they had a national broadcast of the film, uh, in the heart of the World Cup. I think it was right after one of the key games on, on a Saturday, um, prime time. And, you know, again, it's a, a vote of confidence from a network like Fox that they're going to put it on their main channel, you know, Papa Fox. Um, and it's a completely foreign language uh, documentary. And then they also um, got uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, to do a, a promo um, introducing the film, Um, He had seen it and was really moved by it. And so that was, you know, another just a a really cool way to see that, you know, you have a a domestic broadcast that is being done at the sort of biggest levels of broadcast with big uh, Hollywood type names involved in it for a story
0: that's really not, um, you know, U.S.-based story at all. So I don't know if you guys pay attention to reviews. Do you read your reviews of your films? Yes, you do yes did you, Do people not read reviews I, don't, I, don't, I don't i don't i don't read all reviews. the don't reviews <laughs> no i sometimes decide not to read reviews yeah i was just gonna say i don't know if you are aware that nosa Chape is number 73 of the best reviewed movies of 2018 on metacritic which is pretty cool Nice. that is cool how many
1: out of how many like 78
0: <laughs> no, every movie all the movies that came out last year yeah 73 so I don't
1: so know many how many movies were released last year.
2: But. So it's above momentum generation i uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I think momentum is a hundred percent and Nosa Chape is ninety two or three percent for critics. He doesn't then, read reviews. <laughs> oh, I definitely read the, the, the uh, Aggregates Yeah, I'm more I'm probably more concerned with the aggregates than yeah. each individual review, but it does feel great when an individual reviewer really gets into something and talks about it at a deep level,
0: that feels amazing. So so you read reviews, Mike, and how, how do they affect you? Do they have any impact? I, I, yeah. I, yes.
1: Yeah, so I think I'm interested in reviews from like multiple different levels. I think on, on the most superficial level, you just want to know how, how well your film's being received by those that are deemed professionals and receiving films. <laughs> but then um, the more interesting part is like, well, you know, what is their, what was their personal experience? What's their more academic analysis? You know, all that kind of jazz. And like, what it, what do people get out of the film? I mean, the truth is that we we've been um, doing a lot of focus grouping of the films uh, before we finish them. So, and really trying to take to heart when there's uh, commonality to the feedback. Um, and we often will target specific areas that we're still working on and ask a lot of questions about those. So that's been a really helpful process. Um, and, uh, and so I'm always kind of curious, like when, you know, an, an actual professional review comes out after the film's been released, like how much does it align with all those conversations that you were having? Um, to what extent do they pick up on uh, some of the subtextual and thematic stuff that, you know, you were working on? So I, I don't know. I think that's all
0: an interesting process. So you found the focus groups, that's a very beneficial thing for you. Like you don't feel like it impedes on your just your artistic... Uh, you know what, kind of yeah. blocking out what other people like and just doing what you think is the best thing.
1: I mean, I think that there's a there's a spectrum there, and usually by the time we're focus grouping a film, you know, we've already gotten through at least the lion's share of production and the lion's share of editing, and so it's um, a lot of the creative process has already happened yeah, without.
0: Made the film.
1: The bigger structural
2: and containing choices are probably pretty set in stone and it's about within that what execution is working best for the audience and if there are sections that aren't working at all, what they might be and what sections are working best. But I don't know that that we've ever gotten feedback at that late stage that has then inspired us to go back and
0: fundamentally change the vision. Okay. Do you want to give an example of something that was like uh, a change that you made because so many people in the focus group were kind of leading you down a a path? I mean, there was... With with Nosa Chape, we made a a big
2: decision to take the hook or the cold open prior to the title at the top of the film um, all the way through the entire history of the team, including the previous year's Cinderella season. All the way through the crash. Um, initially, we had sort of summarized that section and then gone back in sort of flashback structure later in the film to fill in the blanks. And we decided, based on feedback, that it would make the impact of the crash emotionally. Work uh, 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 more dynamically if there was an attachment to the players on the previous year's team before the crash. Mm-hmm. And so that meant building out the Cold Open to be longer uh, and allow access to some of those characters uh, and really meet them and get to know them. So more of the sort of home video archival and news archival that we had got put back into the Cold Open, mm-hmm. which is a pretty big change because that's, that's the beginning of your movie. You know, back in the day with Favela Rising, that's my most extreme example of focus grouping affecting the approach to the storyline. Because we had multiple protagonists in that film, um, and it was really a, a different movie. It was about the rich areas contrast to the poor area, the favelas versus the Hipanema and Copacabana. And feedback was overwhelmingly more interested in a single individual and felt that his arc was sufficient for a feature doc, and that was the direction we went.
0: That That's probably what I remember the most from the feedback of Give Us This Day. It was like, who are the people, who are the characters that people are responding to the most and trying to like flesh out their story so that, yeah. you know. Do you remember any other things from the Give Us This Day changes? Oh,
1: yeah, there was, you know, there was characters. There was a lot of secondary characters that we also asked for feedback on that, um, you know, there was some that people didn't respond as much to that we ended up removing entirely from the film. There was particular scenes, even with main characters that were bumping for, you know, a a bunch of people. um, And we ended up removing those scenes. Uh, There was, I mean, there's always clarification things. That's always helpful, you know, pacing and clarification, uh, overall duration, all that stuff
0: remember we worked a lot on that so let's talk about give us this day so um, I feel like it's almost like that movie was never released like there was no response to it at all do you guys feel that way there was a um, you know there was
1: the festivals um, there was some festival screenings of the film um, and there was dialogue there we had screenings in East St. Louis which were um you know really uh, just uh valuable experiences I think, to get the feedback of the local community and have the yeah, i haven 't talked to you about it. that so yeah. what
0: what was that feedback like from the community?
1: It was very positive. Um, I actually went into that screening expecting there to be more just to have it be more divisive, yeah, polarizing and um, and actually people were really enthusiastic about it. And it was, uh, we had, um, I think almost all of the main subjects in the film there. And they all, you know, were up on stage afterwards. You had James Samuel giving a hug to Rich Sharp. And, wow. you know, so those are the police and the residents um, really connecting. It was interesting because it, it was a packed theater. We rented out a, the largest theater they had at this, um, this cinema chain, Marcus theaters, uh, right outside of East St. Louis, uh, cause East St. Louis doesn't have their own cinema. And it was, I can't remember 250 or 300 seater. And it was, it was packed. And, um, we had, a um, you know, a a local television show host, um, attend and moderate the discussion. Um, and it was probably, I mean, there was a healthy amount of law enforcement there and there was a, you know, An even healthier amount of of residents from the community there so it was um a very safe screening (laughs) it was it was very safe Did anyone
0: feel like they were misrepresented at all
1: no it it certainly didn't come up during you know the the panel discussion it didn't come up directly to me at all uh, and i haven't heard that that's good yeah i remember i mean it was the first time rich sharp saw the film um we had tried to show him the film prior to that it just it didn't work with his schedule and um, so that was interesting he actually attended with uh, his ex-wife and his really uh, his daughters their daughters and so that was really interesting particularly in the sections where he was professing his love for his ex-wife I remember he actually went to the bathroom uh, shortly after that scene <laughs> and never came back was no. never seen again <laughs> I, I bumped into him on the way out and I, you know he was like wow that was, that was intense yeah
0: Any any story that you're, because you guys have done narrative films and documentary, how do you decide what should be done as a documentary and what should be done as a narrative film? Is there any? That's one of the main things Mike and I powwow
2: about, especially in a period like we're in right now where we just finished a large quantity, a big slate of work. Mm -hmm. And we have a a number of opportunities in front of us and we have to decide. both what's best for each story and also what's best for us mm. so that we feel stimulated and we're growing and we're improving in our craft. And um, often, you know, th- there's a there's a slight bias. You kind of want something to be more of a series or more of a scripted piece or something, but you got to listen to what the material is dictating. Um, I would say that the the... The decision or that conversation has evolved over the years also, and in recent years there's been more references, more examples of hybrid work that has, has really, we feel, been successful uh, in keeping the audience within uh, the diegetic and the emotion of the scripted pieces, uh, but also adding context and authenticity through the nonfiction pieces without pulling you out of the experience too much. And so that's been a, a more prominent part of our conversations in recent months even than it would have been three years ago when we were putting our last slate of projects together. Did you see The Rider?
1: Do you know what it is? Yeah, the um the horse rider show uh, film. Yeah. Um I didn't watch it though. I but I know the I I saw the trailer, how about that? I saw the trailer and I
0: saw it won a gazillion awards. words. Yeah. Well, that to me is like a, an example, you know, the filmmaker comes across a subject that she finds interesting. Yeah. And she could have made a documentary, instead she has the real guy play himself and tell, uh, do a narrative film with him acting as himself, but, uh, you know, basically everything is kind of what happened, but she's kind of forming it and shooting it in a way that it is fictional. But, and I and I wonder about even something like Give Us This Day, like you could have decided to do something similar and been like, okay, we really like, you know, obviously it's a gamble trying to get someone to act who's never act, acted before. But you could say, I think this guy has charisma. Like we could just follow him around and, the, and we could make a narrative but shooting it in all these real places and having him play himself and right. Like, have you ever, ever thought about doing things?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're actually developing something right now that's using that model. Um, but with give us this day, I think, um, well, first of all, there's the, you know, how it actually was brought to us that, that concept, um, and it was already, uh, effectively set up at, AT and T originals um, as a feature documentary. Actually, I think it was um, there was a discussion about it as a doc series versus a feature doc. But it was always, you know, the intention was really to um, to humanize uh, both sides of the law enforcement and resident debate that was so prolific in the news media and that the whole producing team, um, really felt was kind of being oversimplified. And so with that mission at hand, it, it, it didn't, that doesn't, um, you know, I think there's an element to, this is an actual cinema verite documentary where we're not fabricating any events or scripting anything that, um, makes that film what it is. I mean, if you somehow start to script it, then you've just got, it's almost like it even changes, not just, the from documentary to scripted it also changes the whole genre of the thing to like now it's an urban like scripted film you know um so i think the um intention of contributing to that dialogue and humanizing the subjects um was uh would would be quite different in that context but it's something that we've been um we've been playing with a lot um and even the sort of hybrid idea of having somebody i mean look at um uh uh barton what's his second name? Bart laden
0: yeah Amer- american animals
1: yeah and and also the imposter right um like in the imposter he had um the real subject play himself in recreations mm-hmm. um and then in american animals he he has actors play the real life counterparts but they're also in the film mm-hmm. and there's sort of some overlap there so I yeah, I mean we've we've been playing with very similar but yet different approaches to some of the stuff that we're
0: developing now. Well and you even in your documentaries you still do a lot of scripting. Like you're you walk that, that line, it's just it's kinda like moving in the progression of like, okay, more and more how can we control you know what we're trying to the story we're trying to tell but still keep it grounded in reality right
1: yeah and I mean and there's a big difference between um you know scripting a documentary I mean scripting is not really the right word because what you're effectively doing is capturing real material and then looking at how you tell that story that's the writing process yeah (laughs) as opposed to scripting which is to create the actual material from first there's the script then there's the material Um, going in that direction obviously changes the verisimilitude of what you're doing
0: yeah but you do have instances of within the story that you're telling you are uh, leading real life people into certain things that will in the same way that like in a court of law, you, you lead lead the witness into talking about something. You do the same thing with film. You you lead discussion. You lead where you want people to go in how they tell their story. And there is some like, I mean, to some extent, I think that um, it's
1: you know in doc in pure documentary film, even in the purest forms, it's very difficult to not have the filmmaker uh, be a part somehow of how that story is told because. I mean, even in in you know the craft of editing, there's just by virtue of omission you're you're making you know subjective choices about how this story will be told. yeah that said, you know ideally, you want to minimize the amount of uh you know filmmaker hand that's in the story insofar as you're you know you're trying to minimize it. i mean there's other documentary approaches where it's made very clear to the viewer that the filmmakers you know, had had an intervention here and forced this person to meet that person or whatever. Um, But yeah, something
0: like Give Us This Day, we're certainly trying to minimize that influence. So is there a, is it just dependent on the type of movie that you're making that decides the line of intervention that you won't cross? (laughs) Or is it like, is it a fluid thing like well, I mean, if you look at the last
1: um, slate of stuff we just released over the second half of 2018, those three feature docs and the two doc series, I don't. I think we were, all of those would fall into the category of minimizing intervention. We, you know, a lot of if you look at the stuff we've done in the past, it's. Um, You know, we we haven't used voiceover narration. We haven't used, um, we don't put ourselves on film. You don't hear the questions being asked of the interviewee. Um, Others, you know, do more of that. And it's not something that Jeff and I are categorically opposed to. It just hasn't been our approach. We prefer to let the subjects tell the story in their own voices and to, um, from a viewing experience, to not break the fourth wall unless the story calls for it so there's some other you know projects we're developing now in the doc and the doc hybrid space where the um you know the the stories themselves are more commentaries on media for example Mm. and so how you're telling a story about the manipulation of media being a piece of media yourself, suddenly those meta layers of who's the filmmaker and how is this being told become relevant to the overall narrative and thematic experience. And then it's like, okay, well this actually can enhance the story and the experience by breaking the fourth wall.
0: I guess that that gets back to the initial question of when you're deciding between it being a documentary or a narrative, obviously it's what will be the most effective way to tell this story. but. It seems like a really hard question to answer because you don't you don't know necessarily what will make what will be the most effective, um, especially when you work in both worlds and you love the impact that a well crafted well scripted thing can have, but you also love the authenticity yeah. of something that is a documentary right. and it's like how can you how can you guess what will be
1: best I mean a lot of I mean if I think about those considerations when Jeff and I have been Exploring sort of the early stages of a story and how best to tell it Mm -hmm. a lot of that the starting point I think just comes from practical consideration. So, you know Particularly on the documentary side like what you know, what do we have for? Material to bring this to life. How many of the real life subjects in this story are actually still alive? Mm -hmm. How many of them are accessible? I mean, we're dealing with one right now where the main subject is in prison in a foreign country where, um, all indicators are that it would be quite difficult to get access. Um, but then also what exists archivally, um, you know, it's, for example, it's rare that you would see a pure, you know, feature documentary about a story that transpired in 1740, you know, um, because where's your archival and where your real life subjects, right. And then you're just kind of getting into like a history channel type, you know, didactic piece. So that I think that's one of the big things that starts to push, at least from documentary towards scripted, and if not all the way towards scripted, at least into that hybrid space. So,
0: what what would be the dividing line between recreation and a narrative a, approach, like in American Animals? Like obviously, in Imposter, they, it felt more like recreation, yeah. and it wasn't so. You know, obviously, actors make a difference, but in something like The Writer, where you're Spelling someone who's not an actor, but they're kind of playing a version of themselves—that's like another thing. Um, well, I mean, what what is the future of this uh, this well, hybrid? So many, I mean, that's
2: what's exciting about it: is that to say hybrid doesn't indicate a third model, scripted, unscripted, and hybrid. Hybrid is a spectrum of options that hasn't been well explored yet. Yeah. So you've given two examples right there, and Mike and I have talked about probably another six or seven variations on that or approaches to that Mm -hmm. Um, and and we don't know which one's audiences feel manipulated by or like they're not being um, treated with the level of integrity and respect that they want because those haven't been tested yet those are the risks
0: yeah
1: i almost feel like the biggest dividing line between the two is much more around like how it's marketed and what departments are set up to receive What Regina. expectation yeah. does yeah. the
2: viewer go into the
1: film with, right? If you're
2: told through a trailer this is a scripted film and you end up watching 30% talking heads, like you probably are more frustrated than if it's pitched to you as a hybrid or a doc yeah. and you go in and you're pleasantly surprised to see the production values. You know, he was talking about push what pushes projects from doc to towards scripted. And I think one of the things that we also talk about is what pushes projects from scripted to doc is sometimes the fully scripted version of something ends up feeling much more formulaic and expected, right? That there's less surprise in the scripted version because we've seen X story or Y formula done mm-hmm. so many times in the scripted space. It works as a doc cause it's unbelievable that it's true. Uh, but it doesn't work in scripted because it's very predictable. Right. And so certain stories don't want to be made as straight scripted stories.
0: Um, they, they just become generic. When you guys were approached to make Pele, you, that, that was your first narrative film, right? Yes. That we directed, we'd written scripts. Okay. So was that, um, what was the approach like in saying like, okay, we've seen your style with documentary and we think, this would suit suit you. Yeah. How did that come about? How did how
1: did we land the gig, as it were? Yeah.
0: I think it was it was as much about
2: people saying they'd seen our work in the world of South America and, and football, soccer, as it was about them saying they'd seen our work in the doc realm. I don't remember the early conversations being ones in which the producers or the those at the creative sessions were saying, because you guys come from documentary, let's make sure to embrace that.
0: But it was, it wasn't a hindrance.
2: That was not a part of the the dialogue that that I think you know led us or pressured us to move in a certain direction. There was a lot of other pressures, um, but those primarily were results of it being you know twenty times bigger in scope and ambition and team than the stuff we'd worked on in the past, and so. Um, We didn't have uh, the the level of authority or ability to just run with our ideas that we would on a Mm doc
0: And that's a whole different political process do you do you wish you could have made a a smaller film About that same subject or I think that subject
2: wanted the scope, you know the big stadium um, period, stadium, World Cup, recreation needs scope. Pele is the greatest footballer of all time. His story sort of deserves and, and I think sets up the expectation of scope. But um, yeah, there's, there's, there's creative freedom uh, in an indie or a lower budget project in the scripted realm that I, I think um, we would have really reveled in and to do something at that level meant that we were working at a pace and with um with a number of obstacles that probably we wouldn't have had at the at the indie level. Mm-hmm. So I could see the benefits of working on a smaller thing. At the same time, you know, feel very privileged that we were able to direct a feature at that scale so that we have that experience
0: under our belt. Yeah. Have you looked at other documentary filmmakers making the transition to narrative and as like case studies of what that has been like for other filmmakers
2: particularly when they take an unconventional route so like you know if if for example joe berlinger just did the ted bundy tapes which is a series a doc series on netflix at the same time that he released a scripted film on ted bundy at sundance you know that's something that you know, there there isn't a there isn't a, a doc filmmaker who also does scripted out there who hasn't considered when they take on a story in the doc realm also making something in the scripted realm about it. So that's an interesting case study to look at. Um, or as you were talking about with American Animals and The Imposter, you know, that's a that's an interesting transition from more traditional doc reenactments into um, this new hybrid balance that I don't know if there's a previous reference quite like that. Uh, but if it's a more traditional, they used to do docs and now they're doing scripted, That that's not as interesting. Then it's just a part of the bigger pool of who's making great films that inspire
0: us and push the craft forward. So what are, what are those filmmakers for you? Who are the, the top, uh, most inspirational, or things that have kind of inspired you the most? I don't know. I'm terrible um, at this question. Yeah, we <laughs> never, never
1: we man. never have an answer to that um, which isn't to say that
0: we aren't we're not inspired by yeah,
1: yeah. but uh, yeah, it's not like we're constantly referencing you know the whatever the 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 a, a series of films or filmmakers that we aspire to or that have been our inspiration.
0: What what made you guys want to be filmmakers? Where did it start for you?
1: Probably a different place for both of
2: us. I was um, doing Latin American studies and sort of approaching things more journalistically in college as an undergrad. Um, But I was in an Ivy League school where the emphasis was on um, we're the thinkers of tomorrow and therefore we don't need to also learn the hands-on craft. Um, There was a sort of pretension around others will do that for us. And I didn't feel that way. I, the way I learned best was hands-on. Um, I could read a book and write a paper and get a good grade that week, but then usually it was gone. It, I couldn't retain that knowledge. So the way my mind worked was more suited towards hands-on craft, and I felt like getting my, uh, my money's worth in college meant that I should learn you know, editing software and cameras. And because the school didn't have that much of it, I ended up teaching editing and camera uh, at Brown and then um, after Brown as well, at the New York Film Academy. Um, but yeah, I, I had drawn and painted growing up and I had traveled a lot and liked storytelling from a more journalistic standpoint.
0: But you weren't uh, like, you weren't a cinephile, it didn't come from a love wasn't, of...
2: It wasn't from an obsession with cinema, no. Nor did I ever really get into like the history of cinema or, or you know, the, the, the canon of indie you know, outdoors and I, I, I never was that geeked out about that stuff. Um, it just seemed like a great way to go out and tell stories that were not being told, but that I was encountering and coming across in the world. Uh, and then went to Brazil and made Favela Rising at the same time that Mike was um, coming out of an acting background uh, at Tisch and running a theater company in Mexico um, and directing at the Old Globe in San Diego,
0: Oh, I, I didn't know that. Uh,
2: he spent four years in Mexico, and we joined forces after Favela Rising, and Mike brought this whole new approach to storytelling in, which was from um, a scripted uh, and acting perspective, and he was a he's a savant at structure. He knows story structure inside out, and I had been approaching everything from more of a journalistic point of view. Uh, and, and we now both have learned more of the other's approach to things, and every project kind of is somewhere more in the middle of that spectrum, but involving both both approaches, both voices.
0: So you guys didn't make things together when you were younger at all? We made our parents happy and unhappy together. <laughs> <laughs> no you know, no I mean, artistic par- partnerships on things until mm, later?
1: Not any, like, n- nothing we could point to today and be like, oh yeah, but I'm sure there's some, you know... Arts and crafts stuff that is on our mom's shelf. We did
2: scavenger hunts. I did a scavenger hunt once for you.
1: Yeah, he did a pretty elaborate scavenger hunt for my birthday, or <laughs> was my graduation? I think, it would have been. I think it was just a big old "I love you." You were a senior. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a uh, high school graduation, cool. and he. Um, I mean, it's it's probably a good concept for uh, a thriller. <laughs> Horror movie <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That
0: ends in you getting murdered?
2: Or what, um, what do you mean? And then like, <laughs> they play happy birthday
1: in a minor key during the end credits <laughs> It was basically a surprise party for me That uh, I obviously didn't see coming And there was a bunch of my friends And there was a series of clues that led us on a scavenger hunt That you know took us everywhere from down to it was nighttime too so we like went down to the woods um this this path uh, in the woods behind where we lived and there was clues you know in like tree trunks and well it was, I, it was a little more elaborate than that you actually had to break into the state mental
2: hospital which was abandoned oh wow um, we went we sent you to the two old witches graves um we we had you um kayak out to an island in like
1: January. No, so, okay. I, <laughs> wow. no, so the clue was that I had to. we had to go to the island. There was no kayak to go to the island, so I swam oh, that's right. to the island. Where,
0: where is this? Where did you guys grow up? In what? Northampton. Western Northampton, Mass.
1: Massachusetts. Okay. I swam to the island, and one of Jeff's friends was in a kayak that came from the other side of the island wearing a Jason mask. <laughs> <laughs> like, distorted his voice and gave me, gave me the next clue. Wow. And then it ended, but so the real sort of twist of the whole thing that, you know, I was getting to it it built up in complexity to the point where we would have to drive. um, My brother was nowhere to be seen this whole time. Right. So we had to drive from one clue to the next at one point. And when we arrived uh, to this graveyard and there was this tomb that the clue pointed to, Coming from inside the tomb was a recording of the conversation we had just had in the car. Wow. That apparently one of my friends who was in on it Uh had recorded us without us knowing and like tossed it out the window to Jeff somewhere who had like placed it.
2: And at the end of it all, they went into a house they hadn't been in down to the basement. And there was a video camera that said press play and it showed the video of them all through the night because I'd been hiding in the bushes filming them. Wow,
0: that's awesome. And that was the reveal
1: yeah. about who was behind it. So I don't know if we so much did that together <laughs> I was more the victim of <laughs> that experience. Don't you still feel like you're the victim of our <laughs> collaborations most of the time? Yeah, and then my name gets slapped now. So so you started with acting though. That was your yeah, I went to NYU Tisch um my freshman year of college and I studied at the Atlantic Theatre Company um, as an acting conservatory major and then um, ended up transferring going to Westland I uh, got really involved in uh, meditation and Eastern mysticism and majored in philosophy uh, nothing to do with film or theater or TV and then um, what, after, what made
0: you not want to act anymore
1: Um, I, it's not that I didn't want to act anymore. I just, um, I think I was 18 living in Manhattan and my brother was at Brown having this very cool kind of campus liberal arts experience. And I felt like I love what I was doing in New York, but it felt like something that I might want to come back and do more as a specialization after I'd had a college experience because NYU at that, I mean, it was not, there was no campus, there was no real, I mean, our socialization happened in, you know, 10 by 10 uh, rooms. Yeah. That was it. You know, we couldn't go out and really take advantage of the city. We didn't have money to do it or so. um, so I just kind of decided to go after a you know, transfer and have a liberal arts education and then you know get back into um, the theater and acting, which is what I did. So after I graduated, I went and I worked for a short period for the Florida Repertory Theater and then um, came across and worked at the Old Globe in San Diego and was the binational relations coordinator for them, doing a lot of work with the SECUT and the, the, um, the whole theater institution in Tijuana. Ended up assistant directing an opera in Tijuana. Oh, wow. It's a very random but super rewarding experience. And then um, went down and started a, a theater company with a bunch of, of friends in Mexico. Um, and, you know, it was really writing, directing, and acting, you know, in, in this collective
0: group down there. So, Jeff was talking about your penchant for structure and so where I know you guys use the is it the Hague, Hague model yeah Hague, how do you well, well michael
1: Hague, who's a yeah he's a a, a script doctor yeah oh. um he was uh one of our our sort of the first uh um you know script doctor how to write a script how to structure a story Uh, authors out there that we really gravitated towards and and have since
0: worked with him on a number of projects as he comes on and consults and okay so had you kind of looked at the different ones like had you look at like McKee or Sid Fields and other things and decided that you liked his uh you know I think if I'm remembering correctly I
1: attended a a conference it was like a weekend conference in San Diego and there was a few different um you know seminar classes kind of things going on and i attended a few of them and his was one of them and i just uh, really it just resonated with me and i remember um introducing myself to him afterwards and then um not that i would considered ever you know bringing him on as a consultant or anything at that point i think this was before i was even working with jeff if i'm remembering correctly and then um yeah. And then down the road, once we started kind of getting our hands dirty and some more stories, because we were writing the theater group, we were writing our own scripts down in Mexico. So I was already engaged in that process. But then when Jeff and I started working together and we started uh, fleshing out stories, um, yeah, it must have just come, you know, hey, I, you know, this is this is this thing that I learned from this guy. And, and you know, we started um, referencing it more and more. And then it, yeah, it became a thing where we now like we talk about it a lot and we share it with people that we're working
0: on story with. Mm. But do you, do you feel like you've developed your own ideas beyond that? And that's kind of like what kind of got you into it or do you, do you stick pretty closely still to that? I mean, honestly, it's, it's interesting.
1: I, it's like, I don't, um, I think sometimes when we're working on a story, we don't reference, Uh, Hague or structural formulas at all other times we reference them heavily but never are they I think there's kind of a misconception that if you're using a structural um, you know template that somehow that's going to dictate the story it's it's actually a much more complex and dynamic alive process than that so it never feels like oh this is the because um, often what will happen is that we'll say, well, maybe this is the way the template gets filled in and we'll explore that. But then we'll realize, even though it seemed like that was the obvious way to find your 25 percent mark or this motivation or whatever that part of the template you're trying to fill in is, that actually there was something missing in that. And so getting actually getting the template to work in any given story is um, tricky.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah how do you feel about like sticking to any type of structure or or versus just having intuition about how a story should flow? I think, I think intuition is really important when it comes to
2: mood, mise-en-scene, aesthetic, um, you know, all of the sort of execution choices should be driven by your gut. Uh, as far as the bigger picture, of how you're going to structure things and the pace at which things are going to move and how much information is too in the weeds. And um, th- that, I, I, I think, if one is really going for uh, a, a mood piece and is not concerned about the size of audience, you could throw it all out. Um, but if there is some interest in it reaching the story, reaching an audience that might not otherwise be interested in that material or that subject matter, then I think it's a really important tool to pay attention to. And that's not to say you don't intentionally know when you're departing from the rule, mm-hmm. which we do all the time, but certainly being aware of you know, what a... Um, a viewer who's less in the choir, as it were, who's less converted to that subject matter, is going to expect at a certain point in their movie-watching experience or in their series-watching
1: experience, that's really important to be aware of. And I just, I also think that there's this this notion that if you're following a template, that it's somehow going to be conventional. But, the you know, the idea of the hero's journey, whether it's Haig or anybody else, like, it's all derived from... You know the early stages of myth through stories that have had resonance and longevity through the years so it's right. it's almost like a reverse engineered thing that's trying to understand what great journeys entail right. and what do, what do we really respond to at this innate level or a cultural level and so like a lot of the time it's it um you know you can be following what a hero's journey would be in a very unconventional story or something I almost feel that if if somebody that knows that template is able to very easily discern, oh, that was this mark or that was that mark, you probably haven't told the strongest story there, mm. you know, but you could tell like a super avant-garde, weird story and still
0: be using that template. Does Does it affect you as a viewer when you see it, obviously? present, like what you're saying, like you're watching, you're like, okay, yeah. you now we're at the 25% and this is going to happen. And, you know, does it affect me personally?
1: Yeah. Like, does it bother you? Like, does it, I don't know if it, it yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes it bothers me if it's super, you know, it, it's almost as force that they're trying to get to this mark or something. Yeah. Um But also I would say that, uh you know, there's not, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me like people all have, their own templates that they they follow like just because you know we, we were resonating with the way haig did it like i think we've kind of <laughs> did, done our own spin on what yeah. you know the template was that he laid out and he's also changing all the time like i remember um i attended something he was giving a talk at at some point, he had totally be like, "Oh, I used to think of it this way, but now I've totally changed it this way, and you know, it's a pretty living breathing thing. i I think if I notice when thing like when it feels like the writers are trying to hit a mark at a certain point, then if that thought occurs to you, then you've kind of been thrown out of the story. So I don't know if it necessarily bothers me, but it might mean that whatever energy is taken up in thinking that is energy that's not dedicated to being engrossed in the story. Yeah. So, getting back
0: to Momentum, uh, that ended up being released through HBO. But was that a, who, who originally were you making Momentum for?
2: Uh, the project was originally conceived by uh, Justine Chiara, who is Rob Machado's manager, and Rob, uh, along with Taylor Steele. Uh, who is the filmmaker who documented and created the cult classic original Momentum Generation films um, from which their title, the name of the group, spawned. Uh, And once we were attached, um, uh, there was uh, some outreach to financiers. Uh, Robert Redford and Sundance Productions became a part of the package, and ultimately Priority Pictures uh, came on board to finance the film and then We sold the film once it was completed uh, to Universal for International and to HBO for domestic North America, Canada
0: and what was the I Know because I listened to Bill Simmons podcast. What what was his connection to it?
2: Uh, Bill, Bill Simmons was someone we've had a relationship with since the early 30 for 30s that we did, and we've been working with on all of our 30 for 30s. He then moved over to HBO from ESPN um, and reached out to us when we premiered the film Momentum Generation at Tribeca. We won an audience award there, and uh, Bill, um, along with Peter and others at HBO, uh, really wanted to acquire it and... Um, because of our past relationships, you know, we were, we're uh, particularly interested in, in bringing us into the HBO family. We hadn't done anything with HBO since Favela Rising. Um, so that was 2006. So it'd been quite a long stint where we hadn't done uh, a project with HBO. That's not true. We did the addiction project with HBO in 2008. Okay. So we, did, we had done something with them. And then we also did a Russell Simmons project with HBO. Um, a little bit after that. So maybe that's not so accurate. But yeah, Bill
0: Bill was a big supporter and a big fan So Do you have uh, Of the of those three films do you have a favorite or that's like asking me to choose my favorite <laughs> child?
2: <laughs> um, no, I think that I'm, I'm proud of what we've achieved as a whole in the last three years, because I never thought we would build a company that would be doing that amount of quantity. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's it was a learning experience. We're we're probably not going to do that quite that amount of quantity again going forward. Um, and also, it was you know a bit of a bucket list check. Like we can do that. We can pull this off. So I I look at it more as a body of work and. Um, feel proud of it as a body of work and I like how diverse it was from you know sports to crime to politics to music um, and and, you know all within that hopefully telling universal human stories that appealed to a wide audience you know it was really exciting to watch the same audience members go from one premiere to another to another and sort of point out some of the similarities and the sensibilities Uh, we do a lot of deeper dive psychology in our storytelling and people tended to point to I can see sort of your mother the therapist in the storytelling and I can see your father the Latin Americanist it's it's there and if you watch them alongside each other in juxtaposition then you start to see some of those patterns come out uh, Momentum generation is um, a, a wide audience sort of feel-good favorite and has, um, just won tons of awards and is just a popular movie. And, and, I, and I'm really glad that it was a part of the mix because, you know, getting mass feedback, um, making people feel good and inspiring folks is an, is an excellent takeaway. Um, Give Us This Day is a really difficult watch, but it's the most hard-hitting uh, and authentic storytelling and so I'm, I'm also really proud that we got back to doing something political because we hadn't done that for a while um, and then you know with, with some of the others like Nosa Chape I'm really proud that we were able to find something bigger than the sport bigger than the region um, and, and ask a complex question that I don't know is being asked in that in, in much storytelling I think the place where I would feel the most uh, sort of limited and unsatisfied as if I felt like we produced a story that didn't really advance either the thematic content or the complexity level or the journalism of previous efforts. And, um, and there's lots of ways to advance the storytelling. Uh, and I think we've done that w- with each of
0: these in our own little way. Is it important to you to make things that are received in a very like mass audience populist kind of way or do you not yeah it's that's
2: so that's one of the that's one of the yardsticks that you measure success we measure success by and i measure satisfaction by Uh, but i would say you know after going and doing something really popular my 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 hunger my thirst is going to be Probably next quenched best by something that's a little bit more experimental and vice versa. So coming off of making Pele, you know, which is a sort of a box office success, um, which is very family friendly uh, and doesn't take huge risks um, and very international. You know, our appetite after that was to find something that was challenging in a in, a, in the cra- within the craft a little more, and we didn't care as much that it spoke to a wide audience. We had just done that, right? Uh, coming off of making um, some more esoteric stuff, our appetite is to have wide audience uh, access and and approval and support and all that again. So it's a little bit of a evolution, I would say, on that front. Um, but certainly. You know, above all else, we don't want to put stuff out into the world that we're not proud of, that we don't feel is integrity, premium, elevated, sophisticated. Um, You know, what we really don't want to be is artists making derivative work.
0: Thank you, Jeff and Mike. We didn't talk about it, but they also have a new uh, documentary series on Netflix called Remastered they are executive producers on that remastered kind of tells uh, different stories and music history in a really cool way so check out that and go back and uh, check out all the films thank you for listening to Salty Cinema please help us out go on iTunes and leave us a review uh, like us on Facebook follow us on Twitter and I'll see you next time